Well, as I get started today on our third week here in this new series called uh, Temples, I want to start just by asking, does anybody here uh, listen to the audio Bible? Anybody listen to the audio Bible? Is that part of your routine? Well, if it's not, I really want to encourage you to integrate that into your habit of, of scripture intake. The reason why is, I don't know the science behind this, but there is something different that's activated in your mind when you're just listening to scripture um, that for me recently has been so enriching. And I, like I said, would highly encourage it, um, encourage you to integrate that into your Bible reading habits. Um, in the new year, I decided that one of the things I wanted to do is I just wanted to get a bigger picture of the story of scripture. You know, when I have a paper Bible in front of me, I'm so tempted to stop all the time and linger on certain things that, that stand out. And what it does is it really hinders me from, if my goal is to get large chunks of scripture, it really hinders me from doing that. So I just thought, hey, I'm going to do the audio Bible instead and just listen, where I can't stop it, I can't linger on anything, I'm just going to let it go, because I really felt impressed to just get the whole story of the Old Testament specifically. I really, I really wanted to, to bask in that this year. And so I started uh, actually in Exodus, and I started moving through, and I felt really bad for the narrator when we got to Leviticus, if I can be honest. Because, you know, Exodus was all fun and games and stuff, and Deuteronomy's great, but then you get to Leviticus. Man, it seriously felt like he was reading the rules of a new card game at some point. You know, tie a string around your big toe and tickle the, the hoof of a goat. And it was like all these different things. And, and I just felt so bad for him. And I think part of the reason that I felt bad for him is because I was displacing, you know, it can be a hard part of Scripture to get through sometimes. It can be hard because we just really don't understand what's going on a lot of the times. And, and I think that's primarily because uh, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is so far removed from our culture today. I mean, it's, it's, we don't even practice it anywhere. We don't talk about it. It's not a part of our worship as, as Christians in the church on Sunday morning. It's so far removed that we're like, I don't know how to relate to this. I don't know how to integrate this. But the truth is, it was a large, large part of the Old Testament system, of the people of God, and especially of the rituals and the practices of the tabernacle and the temple structure that God put into place. So if you allow me this morning, I promise it'll pick up at the end. I promise that. But if you allow me this morning, I spent way more time than I planned on studying the Old Testament sacrificial system this week. And I would like to take you through some of it because if, if you've never studied it before, that's totally fine. But I'm hoping to give you enough today where you have a basic foundation and understanding of that sacrificial system to really shed some light on what really happened with the death of Jesus. Because if you want to understand the death of Jesus, I think you need to understand the Old Testament sacrificial system first because that was really a completion of that system. So I'm asking your permission. Can I be a little bit geeky right now and share some of this stuff with you? Well, even if you didn't say yes, I'm still going to share it anyways. <laughs> so to start off with, I kind of want to use a, uh, the tabernacle that we find in Exodus as kind of a, a middle point. And we're going to talk a little bit about the time before the tabernacle. And then we're going to talk about the time after the tabernacle. Now, the reason why we want to use that as a separating point is because the tabernacle brought a very significant shift in sacrifices. And this is what I mean by it. This may be surprising to you, but before the tabernacle was ever built, 
there was actually three types of offerings that were already being offered, and we see them in Scripture. Again, before the tabernacle is ever built. And those three types of offerings are, there's burnt offerings, there's grain offerings, and there's peace offerings. So, in Scripture, I'm going to give you three examples of when we see these. The first one's probably very, uh, very well known. It was the offering that Abel brought in Genesis 4. He brought to the Lord, it said, fat portions of his flock. And then his brother, um, actually his brother went first, brought the first fruits of the ground. He was a farmer. And if you know the story well, Abel's sacrifice was pleasing unto God. But right there, we're already in the fourth chapter of Genesis, and we see an offering being brought to God without any sort of instruction. God never commanded it. He didn't give them a system, nothing. But yet they're already bringing offerings. And then we see uh, Noah right after the flood dissipates and they finally get to walk on land for the first time. The first thing that Noah does, the first thing Noah does is he builds a little altar and he gives burnt offerings to the Lord, some of which were actually the animals that had just come off of the ark. So Noah gave burnt offerings to the Lord. And Abraham as well. He was most noted for building his little, I call them pop-up altars, because they would build them out of uh, the land and the things that they had as a place to honor the Lord, to remember the Lord, to give um, a sacrifice to the Lord. But Abraham was constantly building these pop-up altars. And not only that, when Abraham entered into covenant with God, he, at God's direction, offered a sacrifice as part of that initiation of the covenant. So the point is that we see sacrifice and offering before the tabernacle ever is put into place. All right? So that's before the tabernacle. But after the tabernacle is constructed, after God's presence fills the temple, we find in Leviticus there's a shift. God gives direction. He says, at this tabernacle, if you're going to bring a burnt offering, a grain offering, or a peace offering, this is how you are to do it. But then, there are suddenly two new kinds of offerings that God talks about. He also says in the tabernacle, you're going to have to bring guilt offerings and sin offerings. And that's because, although it's hard to hear, sin and guilt affects our worship of God. Sin and guilt affects our worship of God. Now, quickly, I want to qualify this because I think there's a distinction that needs to be made that we often don't do. And, and we fall prey to this so often uh, these days. Is I used the word worship of God in there. I did not say relationship with God because those are two different things. You see, what happened is if you broke purity... If you broke your purity, that is not the same thing as breaking a covenant. Okay? Worship. Worship was what that sacrificial system was for. It was not for covenant. If you broke covenant, it was way different than just going and offering a sacrifice. If you broke covenant, that's when exile came into place. That's when God said you had to cut somebody off from his people. That was the penalty for breaking covenant. And at its worst, we see even the people of Israel being exiled from the land that God gave to them. 
All right? So that was the penalty for breaking covenant. But it's not the same thing as simply worshiping God at his dwelling place. So I wanted to make that very clear before I moved on. So we're not getting entangled thinking that every time we make a mistake, we need to somehow reinitiate a covenant with God or our relationship with God. No, that, that's not what's, what's happening here. So these two offerings, just to give you a little bit of background, they had different purposes, but they're kind of similar, but they are different. They're the sin and the, the guilt offerings. Let's start with the sin offering. The reason why somebody would bring a sin offering to the tabernacle is because they needed to decontaminate the tabernacle itself from sin. Or as some of the theologians I was reading put it, they needed to de-sin the tabernacle. What's fascinating is that when somebody sinned, when somebody fell short, it actually affected the tabernacle, which was God's dwelling place. So what they would do is they would bring the prescribed sacrifice to the tabernacle, and the high priest would take it, and they would spread the blood on the articles and inside the tabernacle and even outside the tabernacle to decontaminate it. And what this would do is it would purify the dwelling place of God. And we find our first axis that we want to talk about. And what would happen is it would move it from unclean status back to clean status. So that's what the sin offering was uh, for, was to de-sin the tabernacle and move it from unclean back to clean status. Then we have the guilt offering. And the guilt offering was primarily... Uh, for the desecration of something holy. And this is where we find our second access was from common to holy. So we have unclean to clean and from common to holy. And what would happen is if somebody desecrated something, which means to take the status from holy and move it to common, they needed to bring a guilt offering which would reconsecrate it and move it back from, com from common to holy. And this could be used either for the tabernacle itself or even for a person. So if you needed to offer one of these sacrifices, this is essentially what had happened. It meant you had done something that was inconsistent with who God considered you to be. Think about that. If you needed to offer a sacrifice, it meant that you had done something that was inconsistent with who God called or considered you to be. See, God, in His very nature, is holy. He's unlike, set apart from all others. And He called Israel in Exodus 19, He said, be a holy nation. You are a holy nation, a set apart people. And in Leviticus, He said, be holy as I am holy. So He was calling them to be like Himself. And then He gave them laws. And if you follow these laws, they were acts that were consistent with God's character. They were consistent with holiness. So anytime anybody did anything outside of those laws, anything that was inconsistent with who God called them to be, they would offer a sin or a guilt offering to restore that status of being clean and being holy. So if someone had to offer any of these, now here's the, uh, something interesting to, to point out, is if they had to offer a sacrifice, they could not approach God for anything until that offering was complete and they were returned back to clean status by the purification of their sins. Now the reason why that's very important for where we're heading today 
is it clearly shows that there was a roadblock to worshiping God. If they couldn't even approach God until they were already set back to clean status or holy status, there was a roadblock there for them actually going and worshiping God. Now, I want to point out two things before I move on. And the first thing is this. Our sin, your sin, our sin affects more than just us. Our sin affects more than just us. I can't, I can't move past this here. When somebody sinned, they were not the only ones that needed to be cleansed. They were not the only ones that needed to be purified. The tabernacle itself needed to be purified too. That was God's dwelling place. I can't see a better picture of the meeting place between heaven and earth than the tabernacle itself. Because look, when God decided to dwell among his people, he made himself vulnerable. He made himself vulnerable in the sense that we fall short. And when we fall short, it goes all the way in to the tabernacle. And even the tabernacle itself needs to be purified. Do you know that sin affects God? Do you know that sin breaks God's heart? Why? Because he's chosen to dwell with us. And he's made himself vulnerable through that decision. So when we fall short, it even affects the heart of God. Here's one more thing. Everybody in that camp would have known. God was very specific on if you were to bring a guilt offering or a sin offering, this was the kind of animal you would need to bring. This is the time of day you would need to bring it. This is the whole process of how you would need to do it for each and every one of them, right? And they were very, very specific. Now, offerings were, and sacrifices were only brought during the daytime. And the tabernacle was right in the center of all the people of Israel. I just want you to picture this for a moment. You're standing outside your tent, and you see Mordecai walking a goat down to the tabernacle. You think they all knew what that goat was for? Probably, because everyone knew the goat was, I'm just picking a random animal, the goat was for the sin offering, right? Or the, the one-year-old lamb was for the guilt offering. Everybody knew, oh man, Mordecai's going to offer that sacrifice. And I'm pretty sure they weren't passing judgment on each other because the truth was, they were probably going to go offer that sacrifice in a few days anyways. So they probably weren't passing judgment on each other. But I can't miss the fact that these sacrifices were not offered in secret. They were offered in view of everybody. And the reason I bring that up is because I think even in the Old Testament, right there, we see the very act of bringing a sacrifice was an open confession. It was an open confession of sin or guilt. And we see that confession of sin is a crucial piece to the process of forgiveness. And I think oftentimes, the blood of Jesus is so powerful. It's so powerful. But the Bible in the New Testament never says that the confession of sin has thus gone away because the blood of Christ just covers everything. And we don't need to talk about it. We don't need to bring it up with anybody. No. The Bible actually in 1 John 1.7 says this. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Isn't that interesting that, that John says if we walk in the light, which is openness, if we walk in the light, if we have fellowship with one another, that's openness with a body of people. And then he ends it with this, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. 
Ah, isn't that interesting? There's something about this openness of the things. Now, I'm not suggesting that you walk in every Sunday morning and say, hey, guys, guess what I did yesterday? And just drop like the, the gnarliest sin you possibly can. I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying to go and just spread it about everywhere. But my point is this. Confession of sin is an important piece of the process of forgiveness. Maybe that looks like calling your pastor, or maybe it's a, a, a trusted brother that you can confide in, and just saying, look, God wired us, God wired us to confess these things for a reason. It's part of the process. Okay, I'm going to move on here. With all that being said, we talk about all this sacrifice, I want to point out that Israel, they had it the best out of any nation around them. They had it the best out of any nation around them, but they did not have it the best out of all the options that were possible. You see, God made a way for them to draw near to him. The whole point of creation was that God would be with us and that we would be with God. The tabernacle was not created as just a way to deal with guilt and sin. That was not the purpose of the tabernacle. It was created so that God could dwell with them and they could be close to their God. The sacrificial system was developed to deal with sin and guilt, which was a necessary byproduct of God being with a people that had sinned. So that, that, that system was put in place so that God could dwell with them. It was put in place so that they could approach God. It was put in place so that they could have communion with God. It wasn't put in place just as a way to deal with sin and guilt. And no one else, no other nation around them had that kind of access to God. It was only Israel that was able to present gifts. It was only Israel that was able to make requests of God to seek his favor and to commune with him at his house. So Israel had it the best out of any nation, but they didn't have it the best out of any option available. And that's where we come to the crux of the problem. At the end of the day, there was still a degree of separation between them and God. And God wanted no separation at all. He wanted it where they could approach God and they could acquire of Him without any separation or limit. And that means that sin had to be dealt with completely and not partially. Uh, when Keila and I got married, one of the first things that we did was we had to decide on what airline we were going to fly on. Now, I had come, my family prefers Southwest, so I was always kind of a Southwest fan uh, because of that. Keila kind of didn't have a specific airline, but because she was from Dallas, American Airlines being that that's their hub, was kind of the natural fit. And, and we knew that we'd be going back and forth to Dallas a lot. So American Airlines became the clear answer. And they had, you know, they fly all around the world. So we've, we felt comfortable going with American Airlines. So once we made that choice, I decided, oh, I'm going to get us the, the credit card, the American Airlines credit card, so that we have some benefits. If we're going to spend all this money with them, we want to get some benefits in return. So I got the credit card, and, and they had some good ones to start with. One of them was your first uh, check bag was free for you and up to four guests with you. So the, the benefit would extend to the people that were with you. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So uh, recently, we went to travel. And we got our bags checked. We got the priority line up to the check-in counter. Uh, first bag was free. And one of the other benefits was that American Airlines has, uh, if you're a card member, its own security line. So you don't have to go with all the peasants over there. You get to go with to your own special one. 
And so we get in line and I'm about to enter in the line and I show the lady, there's a lady checking cards there. I said, here's my ticket. It's a card member holder on there. She goes to let me through and she actually stops Keela to check her ticket. And hers did the same card member holder on it. And she told her, oh, you can't, you can't come through this line because you're not a card member holder. And I, I heard it stop and said, well, but she's with me. She said, oh, yeah, but she's not a card member holder. So you guys are going to have to, if you want to stay together, go back over to the other security line and go through. I said, no, 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 no. I'm a card holder. This is my wife. She needs to come through with me. And so after we kind of went back a couple of times, uh, she got very, she clearly, this was not the first time this had happened. She got upset. She goes, oh, everybody always has somebody with them. That's what she said. And, and she, she let Keila through. And I remember after we got through the security line, I was upset, not at the woman. I was upset at American Airlines because I had the understanding that my benefit would extend to my wife. And the whole point is that I want her with me the entire way through the process. And I was saying, if she can't come with me through the security line, the check bag is, is great. That's a great benefit. But if she can't stay with me all the way through, then I don't want this card. I don't want this, this benefit. It doesn't complete what I want it to do. And I can picture Jesus saying the same thing. I can picture Jesus saying the Old Testament system, it was great. The Bible is very clear that God did not make a mistake with that system. It was good. It was pleasing. It was holy. But Jesus, I can see him saying, but unless you can come with me all the way through, unless you can come with me all the way through the process, unless you can make it through the restricted area with me, then something else has to be done. Then something else has to be done. And let's look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. It says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We talked about the problem, but here's the solution. Jesus made a way for us. There's no need to make that complicated, church. Jesus made a way for us. Jesus did what the old way could not accomplish. Because the problem wasn't the old way. The problem was us. And so Jesus had to deal with us. And Jesus did it. But we did not. We did not do it. We did nothing to gain that status. We did nothing to be placed inside the holy place. No, Jesus did it. Ephesians 2, 6-10 says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. There's another verse in Hebrews that says, after Jesus died, after He was buried and resurrected, it says that he took his own blood, not into the temple here 
on earth that was built at that time. It says that he took his blood into the heavenly tabernacle. One not made by the hands of men. One in the heavenly realms. And it says that after he took the blood into the most holy place, you know what it says Jesus did? It says that he sat down on the throne at the right hand of the Father. He didn't get up. He sat down and he stayed right there in his proper place. You know what Paul says about us? He says, we are seated in Christ. Seated in Christ. He does not say, we will be seated with Christ one day. No, he says, we are seated with Christ. Are you starting to see how the benefit transfers? You see, this is called the gift of righteousness. That we have been made right with God, not of ourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift freely given. And if I may say, if righteousness is being right with God, can I say righteousness is also being put in the right place with God? Namely, at His right hand, on His throne, maybe in His uninterrupted presence, on the other side of the veil, in the most holy place. You see, I titled this message today, Status Upgrade. Because what happens is, in Christ, in Christ, you get to follow Him through the restricted area. And if I may say, when you go through the x-ray, and you come out the other side, what do they say? We found nothing on you to prevent you from coming through. You are clean. You are clean. You go through the restricted area with Jesus. And with Him, we've been positioned at the right hand of the throne of God. I started this message by saying that sin and guilt affects our worship of God. But I want to close it with this. Righteousness affects our worship of God. Righteousness affects our worship of God. Hebrews 10.3 says this. The writer of the Hebrews was referring to this, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system and says this. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. An annual reminder of sins. That Greek word used for the word reminder is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used once right there in the verse that I just read. The other three times are used at an event that we call the Last Supper. And believe me, the writer of Hebrews knew exactly, knew exactly when that word was used and chose to use that same Greek word right here in this instance for a reason. Because at Jesus' last supper with his disciples, and one of his final words to them, he tells them, he says, Eat of the bread, which is my body, and drink of the cup, which is my blood of the new covenant. For what reason? He says, do this in remembrance of me. That word remembrance is the other three instances. You see, because we need to remember. We need to remember. At this time, if I could ask everyone to just rise to their feet, I'm going to have the worship team come forward. If you have your communion, I want you to prepare those emblems.
as we move to a close? Why do we need to remember? You see, in the Old Testament, as the writer of the Hebrews was saying, every time they would come and bring that sacrifice, it was a reminder of their sins. It was a reminder of the fact they could not go into the most holy place. It was a reminder of the roadblock that was there. But Jesus told his disciples before he even died, what you're going to see, you best remember. And I'm going to give you a way to remember it. It's called communion. It's called the bread. It's called the cup. But why, church, why do we need to remember the sacrifice of Jesus? Why? Because it will never happen again. Because it will never, ever happen again. Because the Old Testament sacrifices needed to be offered time and time again because they were never able to complete what they were trying to complete. But Jesus is one sacrifice. Jesus is one sacrifice once and for all made us righteous. And so he says, you need to remember because you're never going to see it again. You can't wait on me to die again as that's your opportunity to remember. No, no, no. It will never, ever happen again. That's why communion is so important. Because this is the key to remembering what Christ has done for us. This is the key to remembering the righteous status that's been conferred upon you. The status upgrade that's been given to you in Christ. This is the reminder That you sit on the throne of God at his right hand because of Jesus. This is our Passover meal with Jesus. Would you prepare the bread right now? Jesus, before we partake of this, we just thank you right now. We just thank you right now, Jesus, for the work that you have done. And we take no credit ourselves. We take no credit ourselves, but we glory in the gift that you have given to us freely. We say thank you for your blood, Jesus. Thank you for the access that you have given us to the Father. Father, I thank you that today we stand in the new covenant and we enjoy an access to you that the cloud of witnesses looks upon us saying, That's what we always longed for right there. That's what we always longed for right there. That access. In church, we have it. We have it. With that being said, Jesus, we prepare the bread. And we're reminded of the writer of the Hebrews said that your body was the veil that was torn. And we go through that veil. We do not stop. We go through that veil into the most holy place, into the uninterrupted presence of the Father. With that, we take of the bread. And Jesus, as we hold the cup, we are reminded of the new covenant that you have made with us. And Jesus, we know that From time to time, we may make mistakes. But we thank you that this covenant stands. This covenant stands. And so, Jesus, we take of the cup. We take of the cup remembering 
that your blood will never be spilled again because your sacrifice is sufficient for us. Let's take a